But of course, like everything is written and published after the fighting mm. is over. Imagine if, okay, so say France had won and indeed the Netherlands stayed occupied. Um, I wonder if it would have been the same. Yeah. Did he still think the same or would he have said like, no, no, I'm French. But of course, this is written after other, the fact. Yeah. Uh, this whole other topic. He is a career officer, uh, and I think in a way it's like okay, he doesn't he doesn't know any better. Hi everyone, this is AJ Woodhams, host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Uh, today I'm really excited to uh, interview Samuel DeCorta for the translation uh, that he recently published of Fighting for Napoleon's, Napoleon's Army in Russia, a POW's memoir. Samuel DeCorta is a graduate of Utrecht University, where he studied, studied the cultural history of modern Europe. He writes about popular history, specializing in the history of African-American soldiers during the Second World War, that's really cool, and Dutch involvement in the Napoleonic Wars, uh, which we're talking about here today. Samuel, how are you doing? Hello, AJ. I'm happy to be on the show, and I'm doing very well. Thank you. Great. Well, the pleasure the pleasure is all mine. This is a lot of firsts for this show, actually, today. This is the first translation of something that we've had on the show. Normally, it's authors writing about, you know, writing their own books. But you've actually, you've translated a memoir from a soldier who fought in the Napoleonic Wars, which is really cool. Also in your, your bio, so you write about both African-American soldiers during World War II and the Napoleonic Wars, which seems yeah. like quite a split. What, what, what's that? In, how, how'd you get interested in that? Uh, actually, I specialize in Black American soldiers during the Second World War. It's uh, actually one of my other books. Okay. Yeah, plug it. Pull it out. <laughs> uh, it's about the 614 Tank Destroyer Battalion. It's a Black American unit during the Second World War. Yeah. I'm oh, afraid really? that the audience that's listening cannot look at the images. But yeah, just to give you a bit of an impression. Yeah. Well, obviously, like the that's a, that's a topic that doesn't get written enough about. Maybe we'll talk about, you write another book about it, maybe we can talk <laughs> about that. But um, very interesting to hear that that's something you study. But yeah. Yeah, well, let's, let, we'll, we're just going to talk about the Napoleonic Wars yeah, so, yeah. today. Mm-hmm. So for for this memoir that you've translated, so the, the soldier, his name is uh, CJ, I could be butchering this pronunciation, CJ Wagavir? Wagavir, in Dutch. Okay. But, uh, okay. I can yeah. understand that the pronunciation might be a bit difficult. Sure, sure. And so this, so obviously he died in like the 1800s. Um, he's, mm-hmm. he's long gone. What got you interested in this topic? Why did you choose to translate this memoir? Actually, this related to the Black American soldiers because I translated it during the COVID period. There were the lockdowns everywhere, not just in the Netherlands, but also in the USA. And uh, all the archives were closing. I could not get like the sources that I needed. I could not get uh, access to certain books that I needed to reference. And as such, I was thinking like, okay, this is everything I cannot do. But what can I still do? 
so I know Dutch, uh, I know English. And I was thinking like, okay, so what can I do that is still related to history, the things that I find interesting? And it was during that time the idea developed like, why don't I try to translate one of these memoirs? So I reached out to my publisher, Pen and Sword. I always work with them and I'm very happy. To I love Pen and Sword. Pen and Sword's yeah. great. Yeah, I'm happy to hear it. <laughs> so I reached out to them with this idea. I was like, okay, so I have this Dutch memoir. It's around this many words uh, and we can translate it if you're interested. And of course they were interested and that's how we proceeded. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Well, talk a little bit about the author of this memoir. CJ, I'm just going to say Wagavir. And for everybody who speaks Dutch, I apologize. But tell me about tell me about this person. Who was he? When was he born? When did he die? What was what's what was his role in this um, in this memoir? He was, yeah, a Dutch career officer. So we have to go a bit back into history. So Wagavir joined the yeah invasion of Russia uh, or the Russian campaign by Napoleon in 1812. And at that time he was, if I recall correctly, 30 or 31 years old. It's in the book uh, because at that certain moment he celebrates his uh, birthday. We'll come back to it later. So let's say he's born 1980 somewhere. Uh, sorry, not 19, 1718. And he was a Dutch career officer. He joined at a very young age together uh, with his younger brother. His father was also a career military officer, although I believe he became an officer later on. Anyway, yeah. at a certain moment, uh, the Netherlands were conquered by the French Empire. Um, and as such, he transitioned from the Dutch army into the French army. Uh, which was, of course, um, modeled on the French military units. Uh, so the French had a certain structure in their line regiments, and the Dutch army was adapted to it. He participated in various military campaigns. He also mentions some of them. At a certain moment, he talks about how he has fought against the Swedish people, and at a later moment, he references the Battle of Waterloo, uh, in which he also participated. Anyway, to come back to it, it's actually really interesting because he also admits, like, I'm not a, I'm not a literary man, like, I'm not a writer or something. Uh, and at a certain moment, he also says, like, if people enjoyed reading it, um, because I really enjoyed writing it, I'm, like, doubly rewarded. And in a way, it's for me, it's also true because I really enjoy translating it and like researching the book and everything that's involved yeah. with it. Now, you said he's 30, 31. Does he have a, a family? Like, what's his life like before, before he's sent off? I did not find any evidence that he was uh, married. And I believe he died single as well. He died in 1826. Yeah, 1826, um, also uh, in a Dutch village. But he had two sisters, and they, of course, they were married and they had children. He also mentions his reunion with them in the book. His younger brother was married, uh, although I do not know if 
their children. His younger brother did die at a young age. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Napoleonic Wars um, before we go into kind of the story of this memoir. Um, because, and I don't know if you found this the case with with other Americans that you've met, but I know almost nothing about the Napoleonic Wars. In fact, I just had somebody on this show who was writing about the War of 1812 here in, in America. And I got the date of Waterloo wrong. And I feel like that's like a date that most people who study military history would know. And I edited it out. So nobody saw it. Uh, so I'm, I'm, outing, I'm outing myself here. But um, I really like, I don't, I don't, I was never taught in school anything. I knew about Napoleon, and of course, and I knew he went to Russia and I knew that he, you know, he had to turn back. The, the winter was what, you know, General Winter is what defeated Napoleon. Um, but other than that, I don't really know much about like the causes or really what was going on. Could you just like for, for at the most basic level in this is 1812, what's going on in, in Europe? What is Napoleon trying to do? Who Who's fighting who? Uh, could you just give us like a real primer into the Napoleonic Wars? Okay. So it's 1812, uh, and Napoleon has conquered uh, Germany, Italy, Spain, or large parts of Spain. And this and is just because he wants to conquer them. He wants, he, he it's for the land. Is that more or less correct? Yeah, I, I think in a way, it's also Napoleon, his whole character. It's like he's, he, he pushes on. It's not no. It's not necessarily for resources or for any kind of ideology. It's just that's what he's he wants to do. Well, in a way, I think it could be a certain ideology. I mean, it could also be a way of like eliminating threats. Uh, I mean, of course, like he did not conquer Britain. Uh, Russia was still a potential threat, so it could be a way of like I need to, I need to conquer everyone because then no one can attack me. And of course, I understand that this, it's a very European topic. I mean, everything happened on the European mainland. Uh, so I can imagine that it, yeah, it might not connect with everyone in the, in the US. Yeah. But nonetheless, like, you know, you, it's, this is a really fascinating period of history. Um, so 1812, uh, like you said, Napoleon's, he's conquered all these other countries. What's he setting his sights on? Okay, so he wants to conquer Russia, and in order to do so, he amasses a huge army in order to, yeah, he needs troops to conquer Russia. And he's taking a lot of, not only like French soldiers, but also Germans, uh, Austrians, also Dutch, Italians, uh, even some Spanish, and they all go to Russia in order to, yeah, to support his effort of conquering Russia. And of course, this goes very wrong. There's some excellent histories about it, uh, but in a nutshell, so he reaches Moscow, which is set aflame, and uh, he stays there uh, hoping he can make peace with the Russian Tsar, but it doesn't, it doesn't work out and he has to retreat. But because he waited, hoping for peace, he again lost valuable time that he could have used in retreating. Yeah, and I think one thing I also do know is, maybe this isn't common knowledge, but didn't Napoleon leave all his soldiers in Russia and return to France? Wasn't that like, wasn't that part of what he did? And he returned saying like the emperor can't be harmed or I don't, 
I think it's like maybe one of those Napoleon type could be a myth, but I think that, that's something I've heard about that, that period of time. It is indeed in the retreat that I'm not sure what the name of the village was, but they are uh, retreating. And at a certain moment, uh, Napoleon needs to go back because there was a uprising in France. So he needs to be there in order to, yeah, to show the people like, hey, I'm still there. I'm still the emperor. It's also what he wrote in the um, in one of his messages uh, that went back to France. It's like, okay, the emperor is healthy or the emperor is doing well. Uh, that's what it was. Yeah. Like yeah. He, he got back and like his army is like abandoned. Yeah. And he's like, don't worry, like the emperor is safe. Yeah. And that was like something that I remember reading that was emblematic of his personality. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's focus in a little bit on uh, on Wagavir and his journey towards Russia. So what so so talk about like so he starts out in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. I'm curious like what 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 is his is he just decide is he participating because this is his job or does he have is it a patriotic duty that makes him join this this journey like what are his motivations at this point in his life? Okay. This could actually be it's a very good question because to a certain extent, you can indeed discuss like uh, how nationalistic is Wagevier. Uh, because um, so he published his book in 1820, uh, which is after the Dutch king came back. And the king also gave him his job because after the Napoleonic Wars, he returned as prisoner of war. He did not have a job. And he again enlisted in the army because yeah, he had nothing else to do. And during so to come back to it, when they were marching there, uh, at certain moments he comments on the French people or he comments on the French emperor. But of course, like everything is written and published after the fighting mm. is over. Imagine if, okay, so say France had won and indeed the Netherlands stayed occupied. Um, I wonder if it would have been the same. Did he still think the same or would he have said like, no, no, I'm French. But of course, this is Uh, this whole other topic. He is a career officer. uh, And I think in a way it's like, okay, he doesn't he doesn't know any better. And uh, of course, he makes certain nationalistic comments uh, about the French Empire and about uh, the Netherlands. But yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't know any better. At a certain moment uh, in the book, he also says like, okay, so they're being transported deeper into Russia and they need to mend their own clothes. Um, and he, again, he says like, yeah, I'm, I'm a career military officer. I'm not a, I'm not a tailor. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I think that when you get to, you know, you're, you're like an officer at this time, it's kind of a prestigious thing, right? To, mm-hmm. to be an officer in any kind of army. I know in Britain, you, I think officer to become an officer, you had to pay some, I forget what it's called, but you had to pay money to become an officer. In fact, you could very easily just like mm-hmm. step into an officer's mm-hmm. position by having a bunch of money. Is, is it the same, the same thing in Napoleon's army? For Wagevier, it was different. He really, he enlisted in the army, I believe at the age of 12 or 14, but at a very young age. And 
he served uh, for several years. I believe he served for most of his life in an army. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's no, I can understand his mindset because it's like, okay, I've done this my whole life. I don't know anything else. I can imagine it's quite a, okay, so let's say, let's assume you're an officer, but you're also trained to be an officer. It would be very difficult to suddenly say like, okay, I'm going to do something, something else. Yeah. I think it would have been difficult for him to, I don't know, serve as a farmhand or uh, as a servant somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is his occupation. Yeah. We'll start us off on the journey from the Netherlands to Russia. Where does where does Wagavir go first? Okay, so they're in Groningen, in the north of the Netherlands, and it's there that uh, the entire regiment is gathered. It's the 125th uh, regiment of the line. It's an infantry unit, and it consists of almost Dutch, almost all Dutch soldiers. There are some French officers in the unit, and even the commander of the unit is a Dutchman. Colonel Wagner, he later dies in the journey. So they're being gathered because some of the units were guarding uh, some sea sluices or they were sent to some other place. And they're gathered in Groningen. And from there, they march all the way through the north of Germany until they reach what is now Poland. And from there, they proceed towards the north into the Baltic states, and from there they go further east uh, all the way uh, until Smolensk. I believe the furthest they reach, yes, no, Smolensk, it's, they go even further. So they go north then and then come back down. Is that is that correct? Well, no, it's, uh, they go a little bit to the north and then they proceed uh, yeah. eastwards. Gotcha. Um, yeah, in the book is also a map with some of the places that he mentions. But yeah, so he proceeds towards the east. Uh, and that's, of course, when eventually the retreat comes from Moscow, they're joining in the retreat. And because they were quite late uh, to arrive, I believe that at the time that the French army was crossing the Russian border, there were still they were still in the Netherlands. So we were a couple months behind all the others. So other soldiers probably had to endure a lot more hardship and they were yeah, relatively fresh. In the, the land that they're passing through, so through, through Germany, this is all land that has been conquered by Napoleon already. What's, what's like the landscape like passing through? I mean, are these like burned down towns that they're marching through? Are, are the people there pretty supportive of Napoleon's army just, just pushing through? What's that journey look like? It's actually really interesting because most of the French, uh, most of German people seem supportive uh, or, and that can either be like opportunistic reasons or it might be because they got paid or, they could earn a certain amount of money for it. Imagine, I don't know, uh, let's say you're a wine trader. I mean, I can assume that what's it's more important for you to have stable income rather than deciding like, oh no, I don't sell to French soldiers or I don't sell to certain people. Actually, the funny thing is, is that during his march uh, through the north of Germany, uh, at a certain moment, he is in the house of a German 
and <laughs> he has an argument with this man because so at first this man does is not friendly to him because he assumes he is a French officer and later he discovers he's actually a Dutchman and then he becomes even more unfriendly and at a certain moment he says that he would rather have 10 Frenchmen in his house than a single Dutchman. I remember reading that and I was like, oh, I didn't realize the Dutch were disliked uh, yeah. at, at this particular place. Yeah. Well, what's like the first time that um, Wagavir sees action? There are certain battles that are being, ra- uh, being waged as they go deeper into Russia. At a certain moment, they're a bit to the south. And it's there that uh, they're preparing for a potential attack, but it doesn't happen. I'd say it's, yeah, it's a bit difficult because there are small skirmishes are happening. So it could be like a patrol that is being sent out that needs to take by force supplies from villagers. Uh, and of course, like in some of these engagements uh the villagers resisted uh it's also again in the book and not in all cases these uh, patrols were successful some patrols vanished or were defeated so it could be that he participated in one of these patrols and because he doesn't mention it in detail uh on the other hand well i i i actually found those parts um very interesting because he speaks about how awful war is. So he sees villages getting like burned and he sees death. I think at one point he's, he's like, you know, the smell of death is just like everywhere in these villages. And he sees a lot of violence. Mm-hmm. You talk a little bit about like, you know, what's, what, why is this, why is this violence taking place? It's indeed, he often encounters it. And he also mentions how, okay, so if the rulers uh, experience this themselves, there would never be war. So if they were the ones that had to... I highlighted that yeah. that line, uh, yes. actually. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a very powerful line. And it's a way that, yeah, what I'm thinking about is uh, at the end of the book, there's an appendix and it contains some of the letters that his commanding officer, Va- Wagner, wrote home. And in it, uh, for instance, he mentions there's no uh, there's no shortage of food, uh, or that he read somewhere or he heard somewhere that people are complaining. Sorry, people are complaining about um, yeah a lack of pay or whatever, and he mentions like I'm I'm suffering from nothing. And yeah, I think it's the same with um, what the, the emperors. Are experiencing like for them it's not the same i mean they are in their palaces or they're comfortable or yeah they will not suffer hunger and, or and so this type of raiding this is part of the napoleonic this is part of napoleon's army's strategy of kind of of living off the land is that correct yeah uh it was very common at the time because uh the idea was that if you're in the country of the enemy um everything that you take like they cannot use so if you take all of their foodstuffs and you need to retreat, there's no food for them to take. Uh, of course, like the Russians also employed this with the scorched earth method. 
and they yeah sometimes they willingly burned down certain villages or destroyed certain places so that the French could not use it. One of the places where it happened is uh, Smolensk. It's the citadel where they are approaching, and he stays. Wagner stays there for a couple of nights, and it's also burned down. And because it's burned down, like it offers no shelter for the troops. Like okay, it's raining and snowing, and you want to get out of the weather, but yeah, it's not possible because everything is burned down. You need food, so there's no food for them to find. And this is going to hurt the French army later on. Because, okay, like you need to stay healthy in order to fight. Uh, and yeah, diseases are ravaging around them. And yeah, of course, they, they didn't understand uh, sanitation like we do. Like for us, it's okay, you need to wash your hands before dinner. And yeah, uh, yeah for well, them, this was a lot different. Well, what is what's like what's soldiering like at this point before uh, before they meet the Russians? Like, is it just is it marching every day? Is it kind of holding still until you're given orders to proceed forward? Like, what's a soldier doing on a daily basis at this point? Or maybe it's raiding villages every. I don't like what's what's a what's soldiering at this moment? Okay, so for most of the journey until they are in Russia, it's indeed like every day just marching, going forward, and on certain moments they have a day of rest and like he mentions them specifically because they were so different from the others. So they're marching every day and I believe it's around 40 kilometers. I'm guessing that's around 30 miles top of my head. But Could it's be, part I don't, of I don't know. marching every day that needs to happen. And yeah, um, at a certain moment they are indeed in Russia, and it's where they are being, they're going a bit to the south in order to prepare for a potential attack by the Russian army in the south that's marching to the north. Okay, so they're proceeding towards Russia and uh, they have to march every day. But once they get there, uh, they're deploying a bit to the south in order to prepare for a potential attack by a Russian army that's marching to the north. And while they are there, of course, like the pace of life is different. They have a lot more time to spend on uh, not just taking care of their equipment, uh, but also in yeah, taking care of themselves. At a certain moment, uh, Wagevier comments on how he walked up a mountain and enjoyed the view there, which is, of course, like a very different situation. So imagine like you're in an army you're in a war and it's like, okay, we need to prepare for an attack. And it's also like, okay, we have enough time. Like I'm going to walk up this mountain and I'm going to enjoy the view. It's a yeah. very, it's a sharp contrast in the old situation. So uh, talk about Russia. Talk about Wagavir's capture. First off, is the first time that he encounters the Russian enemy, is that when he gets captured? Uh, it's not his first encounter because he has been in battle for a couple of days he does write also about it uh how he's like okay so they go into a village and they assume they can settle down for the night but it turns out that the russians they've hidden themselves in this village and eventually like they're discovered and a whole battle ensues so it's not the first time he encounters them 
He is captured during the Battle of the Berezina uh, or Borisov. And it's, yeah, it's actually a very unfortunate event because there's a small village and a little north of it is where the crossing is. So it's where the whole army gets across. And because they were, because they're fresh, like they're ready uh, or because they were, okay, like I said, they were, they had to suffer less. Uh, they were deployed as a rear guard uh, because the assumption was that they would be more able to resist. However, as they are proceeding north, the road that they need to take is it's full of people. It's full of people that lost their units, but also uh, women and children that are hoping to make it to the crossing. And instead of like, okay, waiting and proceeding later, uh, they proceed onward and hope they can find another way to the river later. But yeah, it turns out they're marching straight into the enemy. Um, and of course, it's night, everything is dark. And they are trying to take uh, to take on the enemy, but yeah, it's it's impossible because uh, the enemy has set up in daylight, so they are prepared. Like they know, okay, this is the direction they are going to take, and they can just fire their cannons, and they know they'll hit something or someone. Yeah, a, a note on that: um, Wagavir seems particular particularly drawn to instances of people getting hit by cannonballs. I noticed that he is often remarking on people losing their limbs, their heads, like getting completely crushed by cannonballs. So I can't, I'm sure he was terrified, you know, marching into something like that. What's, what's like the actual capture like? Is it just people jump out with guns and they're like, put your weapons down? Like, how does the surrender happen? So they are, they cannot defeat the enemy so they retreat and they deploy on a mountain uh and of course like their ranks have thinned a lot like they lost a lot of people along the way um, so they're deploying on a mountain and they form a square so it means like there's uh it's a common type of deployment uh against for instance cavalry attacks uh basically it means that there's like yeah four sides of soldiers uh, so there's guns in every direction and they just deploy in a square and he is uh, in the middle of it. And once they're there, they hope uh, relief will come from the other side of the river crossing. Like, okay, maybe an army will come across to save us. But yeah, it doesn't happen. And eventually the officers, they negotiate a surrender with the Russians. And when daylight comes, uh, yeah, it turns out they are indeed surrounded. Uh, so even if they had wanted to escape, it would have been impossible. And he's yeah, he's he's just numb. Like okay, he's suffering from hunger. He's suffering from cold. His his feet are hurting. Uh, I believe one of his toes is even frozen. So he's just very numb. We'll talk about going into Russian captivity because this this seemed like a real striking moment of his memoir. What are the conditions that he's living under while in Russian captivity? So they're mugged and robbed. One of his gorget, like his gorget, uh, as an officer, he has a certain plate around his neck to show that he's an officer, and it's being ripped off 
they're taking the shoulder pieces away from him uh they're taking away his money and he's just being robbed and everything that they can take the russians can take they will take and it's it's meaningless to resist because Wagerfeer also comments how a certain high-ranking officer, Lieutenant Colonel of the, not of his unit, but of another unit, it's he's stabbed to death because he resists. And besides being robbed, he's also humiliated. At a certain moment, a Russian soldier stands across of him and he spits in his face and he calls him a French dog. And it's very humiliating for him, especially because, yeah, He's an officer, so he's not used to this kind of treatment. What What's the approximate date that we're talking about that he gets captured? It's November 1812. So things are getting cold. So talk about what it was like uh, around this time. Um, it's It's gotten very cold. What is it like to be in captivity under the Russian army? Okay, so it's 27 November, and it's like minus 30 something. It's very cold. Um, and yeah, they're all very hungry. Uh, they have not eaten a lot for several days. Um, and they're being marched away from the French army. Um, of course, this is this is a logical decision because um, the further they are away from the other French soldiers, the less likely the odds are they can be liberated or they can be freed. Um, so they're being marched away, but uh, all of these soldiers are very hungry. Um, and this is, of course, like one of the things that he often writes about. It's like, okay, we need to get food. Like we need to find food or we need something to eat. Um, and yeah, he doesn't have a lot to eat. Like his, um, right after they're taken prisoner, that like almost all of the soldiers, uh, all of the officers and the soldiers are separated. Um, and the officers are all put into a house. Uh, and that's where they are stayed. Uh, they stayed for several, I believe for a day or something. Um, but of course, like they don't receive a lot of food. Like they find a horse outside and they butcher it. Uh, but because it's divided among so many people, it's not a lot of meat uh, for everyone. Yeah. And he um, talks about just seeing people dying all mm -hmm. around him. Um, yeah. And just the terrible conditions of people mm -hmm. freezing to death. There's one anecdote in particular that he he shared about helping somebody take their boot off and yeah. the guy's toes came off with the boot and like he couldn't do it anymore mm -hmm. like he had to yeah he, he couldn't help him take the other shoe off and conditions were, were that bad um do we know like how many in terms of, of pow's how many people perished uh under under russian captivity at this time do we know that number I'm afraid I don't know it. Uh, what I do know is that uh, not a lot of his unit returned to the Netherlands. Um, at a certain moment, he mentions like almost a whole list, like, okay, so this officer died and this officer died and this officer died. And yeah, uh, most of them did die indeed um, very quick in their captivity uh, because, okay, they're taken prisoner and... Um, of course, like there's diseases, they need food. And um, at that time, like people were not as advanced as we are. Uh, so they did not know like, hey, I need to like wash my hands before eating uh, dinner or uh, like, okay, so I'm, if I need to go to the toilet, I should 
get rid of it instead of just leaving it yeah. out there. Um, and so, how long does yeah. um, how long does Wagavir stay in captivity? Uh, he returns in 1814 to the Netherlands. I believe it's uh, almost one and a half year that he spends in captivity. So when he gets back, like how is how is life different for him? It was very different because, um, okay, not only like was the Netherlands no longer occupied uh, by the French uh, and Dutch king had returned, uh, but also there were some, there were quite a few personal changes. Um, so he returns as a uh, POW um, and it's a bit like he's left to fend for himself at first. Um, eventually he does, he is accepted back into the army, but uh, he receives half pay. So it's like, uh, like 50% salary. So what part of this story did you find particularly interesting or, or new in this field? Um, I was actually very surprised by all the horrific conditions they had to endure, um, which were, yeah, it was a terrible campaign. Like a lot of things that, uh, a lot of many things went wrong. And uh, even in these horrible conditions, so everyone is hungry, everyone is cold and people are still engaging in combat. And that's what I actually find. It's, it's, it's such a mind boggling situation. Imagine it's like, okay, it's minus 30. Both of us are hungry and we're still fighting with each other. We're still engaging each other simply because Okay, the emperor over there and the emperor over there decided we should fight with each other. Um, Does Wagner have any thoughts about like how, what are his thoughts on having put been put through two years of his life in service of of Napoleon? What are his uh, what are his thoughts on that? Um, he does have certain thoughts on it because at some moment he mentions how uh, all of his all of his possessions, everything. He's lost everything when he was taken prisoner. Um, so, and it's not only him, but like many others as well. Um, it's in the beginning of the book, he says that um, these soldiers have to put their their blood and their wealth at, uh, at risk for the whims of the French emperor. Um, so yeah, he's not, like he's lost everything. Uh, and I think in a way, um, it is also a very traumatic event. Um, of course, like war is, it's never fun, but um, he was taken prisoner and he was humiliated uh, on several occasions. Uh, he's been spat upon, he's been humiliated, not, uh, not just by commoners as well, but at a certain moment he meets uh, with a Russian prince in, uh, Moscow and this prince also mocks him um and of course like he's he's a Dutchman he's not a Frenchman uh so when he comes there um uh, he is like he's there like hey I'm a Dutchman but for the prince he is not a Dutchman he is a French soldier that is coming to complain about something um and of course like this prince sends him away um and they're being picked up by the guard and escorted out of the city. Um, and as they're driving away, like people throw uh, manure and other things at them, uh, which is again, very- So not a warm welcome that yeah. POWs no. received. No. Um, 
so I think in a way it's also a very traumatic event that he needed to he needed to process. Uh, and I can imagine that the writing uh, can be a way of like processing what happened. Yeah. Well, my last question here is um, first, Samuel, it's been a great interview. Uh, I've loved your your answers to my questions. And this mm -hmm. is such an interesting story. What are you hoping that that readers take away from reading this memoir? Um, what lessons do you think we have to learn from C.J. Wagavir's life? Yeah, um, it's a very good question. And I'm thinking, um, and the first thing that comes to mind is uh, don't lose hope. Uh, and that's what he also says several times. Um, of course, like he was uh, a very religious person. He mentioned several times, like uh, you should have faith in, in God. Um, and it's actually, that's what I would say, like, don't lose hope. Like, no matter how bad the circumstances uh, might be, you have to survive. Uh, or as long as you keep surviving, like, things can take a turn for the better. Um, so that's what I would say. Great. Well, um, Samuel DeCorta, Fighting for Napoleon's Army in Russia, a POW's memoir by C.J. Wagavir. Um, go out and buy a coffee, check it out from your library. What an interesting story yeah. about the Napoleonic Wars and, and what it means to be a soldier at this time. Really enjoyed it. And um, well, actually, before I sign off here, Samuel, if people want to follow you and stay in touch with your work, how can they do that? Are you on social media? Um, where can people find you and stay in touch with what you're doing? Of course. Uh, so I have my own website, uh, samueldecorta.com. Uh, I will send the links over to you. We might put them somewhere on the website. Uh, also, I have Instagram and Facebook uh, or LinkedIn. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, usually my Instagram is um, it's where I regularly post updates about uh, the contributions of Black American soldiers during the Second World War. Um, yeah, I'm a little bit off topic. Uh, but like recently, we found a picture uh, of a Black American soldier that um, we did not know this picture existed. It's it's in an archive, and by chance we stumbled upon it. Um, and like the story of this soldier is uh, a little bit known. It's um, Mac B. Anderson was a Black American soldier in an engineering unit in 1942. Uh, the airfield he was at was attacked. Uh, it was in India. It was attacked by Japanese uh, fighters, um, and he fired upon them with his uh, 30 cal machine gun. Um, and we found a picture of him, and uh, we like I put this picture out there, um, and I hope people will see it because it it adds a face to a story. It's like okay, like this story. Uh, some people know it, some people don't, but it's. Um, this story is recorded and now there's like a face attached yeah. to it. Well, uh, for yeah. everyone listening out there, go yeah. check out uh, <laughs> Samuel's Instagram. Yes. What is it? I'm guessing it's at Samuel DeCorta. Is that your, your handle? Uh, I believe it's Samuel.decorta. Okay. Well, but I'll send it over. Well, yeah. we've got a, we've got a nice teaser for the audience here. Yeah. Um, Samuel, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your, your thoughtful answers to my questions. Um, what a, like I said, what an interesting story that, that you've helped put out there. And um, thank you.